I've always believed that housing should be considered like a human right. And to be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. Welcome back to the Building Hope podcast. In episode four, we'll take a look at the power of good design to build strong communities and to celebrate shared history. I'm Julie Gabrielli, a professor of architecture at the University of Maryland. And I'm Vincenzo Perla, a current graduate student at the University of Maryland. We're featuring environmentally visionary architectural projects to explore how good design can build hope in a world facing a climate emergency. In this episode, we talk with Jasmine Inoa, who, as a grad student, focused her thesis project in the Anacostia neighborhood in D.C. to repair the damage of racist infrastructure. Her project reimagines Anacostia's historic Berry Farm as an agrarian landscape with homes, businesses, a rec center, and gathering spaces for the community. And we'll hear from Leah Clark, whose project in Baltimore proposed re-inhabiting a neighborhood quickly by housing its most vulnerable people, the unhoused, on the principle that housing is the essential building block of all communities and cities. We'll hear first from Leah. The project is basically a bunch of modular units that are clustered together to house, like, um, different groups of people. So I thought of, like, a modular unit for one person to two people and then up to four people. And... The way I clustered it is just a way to, like, foster community. So it's it's all these little housing units. And the clusters of the housing units kind of take up a series of vacant lots. They're removable, so they can be removed from the site or placed in the site for whatever duration or period of time. And the housing units were supposed to be a temporary solution for the people that live in them so that it's like this transitional housing that people who have been without a home for a while can kind of reside in. Essentially, I kind of made it like a little campus. So I I created like a recreation center at the center of it where people could probably get food, like we could host like closing drives in there or things that could spur interaction and engagement in a community sense. It's supposed to be like temporary housing, but in a sense that fosters community. My initial question was how to essentially use the built environment in a way to empower communities that has historically been marginalized and, you know, don't have resources and access to things traditionally they don't have access to. It additionally started to compound things like, how do you start to honor the history that was here? How do you cultivate this community 
and how do you create a, a sustainable environment? So with that question in mind and seeing the scale of the project site, which is massive, I was uh, thinking of a master plan. In essence, it was creating like an agrarian community with different housing interventions that kind of met with landscape strategies as well as um, creating like a community center that would serve and celebrate the community. We asked Leia about her choice to repurpose wooden shipping pallets to enclose her buildings. When I started repurposing the pallets that became illustrative because thinking about like pallets, it's kind of something that we use and then throw away and then they're kind of discarded. But in this project, we're giving it a new purpose, a new life. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the point of my thesis is giving people who have, you know, maybe been not discarded, but yeah, in, in so many ways, people, I guess, have considered them like sort of discarded by society. We're giving them a new purpose, a new second chance at you know, at life. <laughs> so I wanted to find a material that was already being used quite often, like in Baltimore. And since Baltimore has like that huge shipping mm-hmm. and shipping industry, the pallets kind of became like something that kind of really drive the the typology of the architecture. So. Yeah, that ad- the adaptive reuse is kind of central. I think, you know, that we should always be trying to find ways to repurpose things, reinvigorate things that we, you know, may not have thought of in a way that can be transformative. Inspired by Leia's powerful metaphor, we thought to ask Jasmine what aspect of her thesis best illustrates her ideas. The history of the site, it's very integral to just how I approached the whole process as well because of how it's kind of the foundation of the identity of that place. And it's a palimpsest of these different histories that are collectively part of a greater history of Black people in DC, specifically in Anacostia. And I think that's kind of the main thing that I was trying to honor and celebrate and kind of focus on as I went through the process. So definitely the history, the history of like landscape and agriculture as it was originally kind of the Freedmen's Village. So the refuge of freed slaves who built up their own community built their own churches, schools, their own resources, and then eventually that was erased slash shrunken down to what Berry Farms was eventually, which was a housing development post-World War II. And similarly, they've also created their own community centers, churches, schools for their own sector of that community. And it was very much a way of their empowering themselves. Hmm. So I think going through and trying to use that 
layering of history and continue forward to build like a legacy that honors that, mm. remembers that, and continues to, I guess, empower and honor the identity of all of those histories. Both of these architects designed housing in cities where prices are getting out of hand. But shelter, you know, a place to call home, it's a necessity. It's not a luxury. And in Baltimore and Washington, D.C., the unhoused population, it's climbing and reaching really crisis proportions. Yet solutions from politicians seem few and far between. But both Leah and Jasmine focus creative energy towards new approaches. Why or how is housing such a critical part of living a good life? Why is housing so fundamental? Well, I guess I've always believed that housing should be considered like a human right. You know, like as architects, we're always thinking of good design and housing, but I think everybody should have access to housing regardless. And if you have a place to go back to and you have a place to call your home where you can put your your belongings, your stuff, just the the very essence of a home, um, like I think that's important. Like how can you, how can you, you know, to yourself verify like your humanity, your worth, your self-worth in yourself if you don't even have a place to call home. And I, I feel like the way that we've treated unhoused people has just been awful. I see every day living in DC, the police constantly clearing out housing encampments of people who they don't have a place to put belongings, they're trying to make a place, any place, and you're taking that away from them constantly. Mm-hmm. How, how can you continually deny their humanity, their right to have a place to call their house, to call home? And I feel like you turned up a lot of solid research that's being done around mm-hmm. other outcomes like employment and mm-hmm. health and just their safety. Yeah. In preparation for my thesis, I was volunteering at a a homeless shelter in D.C. And I I learned that unhoused people don't even feel safe in homeless shelters because, you know, they don't feel that sense of security there, like their things can be stolen. Um, The people that work there, you know, don't have that sense of respect or regard for their humanity. I mean, I think as architects, this is something that is amiss in our industry. I feel like we're always catering to developers. They have money, so they want to push projects that are kind of catered toward people who they they probably don't have much of a problem with procuring housing, living somewhere, like they get access to good design. What about the people that don't have capital? We should be serving both sides of the spectrum. Like, yes, development in areas is good, but what if we develop an area so that it pushes everybody who falls below like a certain income level? It just pushes them beneath 
or away from a community. Like we need to be finding solutions that helps everyone. <laughs> no argument here, definitely. Okay, for Jasmine, I want to talk about the heritage trail in your project. Um, and you've already spoken um, so well about like the layers of history and, and the fascination with that and how it's been erased, really. Literally, like the the housing community from the 40s, right? 1940s? Yes. Yeah, uh, was raised in 2019, 2018? Yeah. Pretty recently. Yeah. So I'm curious about the Heritage Trail and how it works as a connector, but also how you envision presenting the history. Um, and just that whole idea that excavating or unearthing the erased history, how that can inform current projects and whether whether that's something you're um, able to or thinking of doing on projects that you're working on now. Yeah, of course. So I think what's really interesting, again, beginning looking at like the 11th Street Bridge was this idea of uh, infrastructure as being a, a connector, but also a barrier. So again, with the creation of the Suitland Parkway was intentionally implemented to kind of continuously gird or like um, separate the Berry Farms community from access pretty much to the rest of even the Anacostia greater area and greater DC area as well. Um, but I think for sure the idea of the Heritage Trail was to do what bridges are supposed to do and kind of create that access that they don't necessarily have. Kind of how I set up the master plan was it progressively gets less dense as you go towards the St. Elizabeth's campus. So it kind of is like a return to through the layers of history where it's yeah. like you're going through like the um, the townhome scale of what that community used to be in the 1940s all the way back to its you call it kind of landscape when it was first a freedman's village as you go through and you're kind of ascending because the topography also works out that way where St. Elizabeth's is overlooking the rest of the community you look back and like reflect on those layers of history or it's kind of like invisible acknowledgement of that progression so it's not only supposed to like create access but it's also supposed to be something very commemorative of that history as far as those kind of gestures in work today a lot of the projects that we work on they are in historic areas so we do try to as far as design return to the vernacular of the homes that we're working with or instances where we're trying to maintain the integrity of the historic aspects of the home. I definitely would like to explore that at like greater like community scales in the future. While we're here, could you just say a couple of things about St. Elizabeth's? A St. Elizabeth's is a very big part of the history of like the Freedmen's Village particularly because the the freed slaves who lived in the Freedmen's Village were also employed at St. Elizabeth's, which was a psychiatric hospital for the mentally insane. And it was it the it was a more revolutionary type of psychiatric care back then, um, because of 
their more humane, I guess, approach towards treating patients, even though I mean, you uncovered some things that weren't as humane. <laughs> but um, the use of like agriculture and farming and like planting or um, using like landscape as a methods of like treatment and that sort of agricultural aspect of it, but also the freed slaves who worked there. It was kind of like these two communities that were marginalized intentionally. They're kind of the discarded communities that you kind of want to forget about. So you keep them on the other side of the river. These two communities, how they connect and relate to each other, I think is very important to overall connecting them as part of that history. You're talking about the highways and how they really kind of girded the communities and cut them off from each other. Um, and there was something you noted um, that the Anacostia Freeway, in your presentation, I was watching it, the Anacostia Freeway was built the same year as the Berlin Wall with similar effect. <laughs> wow. That was just such a wow moment. Because <laughs> wow. like, at least the Berlin Wall has come down now, and, and it's this amazing like art exhibit where they there's a bunch of chunks of it left that artists put murals on yeah so and the anacostia is still there but they're trying to bridge over it so do you want to say anything more about that yeah no i think it's just a testament to kind of how structurally quite literally an infrastructure or infrastructure has been used um or weaponized against marginalized communities very intentionally. And it's also kind of an act of environmental injustice because of the effects of highways and that separation of access. One of the projects that we're featuring in this series is um, Jemima's, where she reconnected the community of Anacostia with the riverfront on yeah. her project. Mm -hmm. So. Everybody, like, I just want all of these projects to be built. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I really do. Um, okay, so then the, the Anacostia Highway, like, it was built right on the river, or right next to the river, yeah. which is, like... Also very damaging to the I was like, Yeah, like, what you're saying is, like, that's obviously not a good place for a highway. I don't yeah. all that know if they knew that at the time, but I feel like they did, and it's just, like proof that you can't look at this highway and be like, here's a place that's the worst possible place for a highway that damages the environment, but we're going to put it here anyway because all of these other people live here that yeah, you don't damning. care about. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you can't argue against it because look at like, it's, it's right quite there. evident. Yeah. <laughs> When I was researching other unhoused, you know, community solutions, I found that a lot of the solutions, they were kind of like, well, we can just put these people in sheds, essentially, like these boring, like, you know, they're collapsible solutions and just have them stay there. But I think, like, we can we can go further than that. We can think about ways that people live. We can think about how to make the space that they're living in beautiful and and sustainable. I think I think that's important. I really wanted to push the bounds of what I thought 
would make a good sustainable solution. Mm -hmm. So you're saying like, yes, housing is a human right, but like, mm -hmm. we can be doing more than just giving people like the bare minimum, the bare minimum roof over their head. Like your projects yeah. about how to make that space actually beautiful. Like, the right to like a nice, beautiful environment is also maybe kind of a right for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I I just think about in life, something that my parents always used to say is like, well, you have to pay for beauty, mm -hmm. like, because we have this misconception that like if you want something beautiful, it's has this monetary connection, like you have to pay a lot of money for it. It's a luxury. It's a luxury. Mm -hmm. But I think we can really deconstruct that. Like, why mm. are we saying that beauty and good design is a luxury? I think if we have means to provide good design, good architecture, good solutions, we should do it. It shouldn't be dependent on monetary. That's so great. I know. <laughs> yeah. Beauty's really. not a luxury. It's very, like, 21st century like western way of seeing beauty it's like well if it costs more then it's beautiful even though it might not be yeah and i don't i never understood why why do we have that thought you know mm, probably capitalism yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not to go there um, <laughs> sounds like a pretty radical idea to flat out say like we could provide this infrastructure but if we don't provide the community it could fail it could fall flat mm -hmm. but in reality like we all have communities that help us get through life like if we didn't have our yeah. family our friends or anyone like those are the things I think that keep everyone going so it makes sense that Unhoused people also need like need that to help their people stay on track. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I would think that it's also just being unhoused can be very isolating. Very, yeah. I've talked to quite a few people who are unhoused, and one thing that they say is missing from their lives after they do procure housement housing. I'm sorry, <laughs> is the sense of community, like. When you're in like, you know, an unhoused encampment, you have other people in your circle that are also helping you out. Like, you know, I can give you an apple or I can give you this if you can help me with that. There's like a sense of bartering. There's mm -hmm. community. Like everyone is kind of in it together. And yes, it's a difficult life, but there is that sense of, well, I have someone there with me to help. Mm -hmm. And then what's missing from you know a lot of solutions is we we give these people who have been unhoused for maybe many years or they're recently unhoused but we we give them you know maybe a job maybe they're able to get a job and then we eventually help them with the house but then that sense of community just disappears eventually but i think we should be thinking of community as rehabilitation. The solution to rehabilitating the unhoused always needs to center community.
Jasmine's project integrates a permaculture landscape into and through her housing and cultural facilities. Yeah, so from what I know, permaculture design sounds like a practical tool to form meaningful relationships with a place. With a little study of local ecology, you can restore damaged landscapes and produce food. The idea behind permaculture is you design it so that human labor is needed as little as possible. Instead, you rely on a wide range of insects, plants, and animals to reach their own balance. And it can be done on any scale, right? So from a small backyard garden to a large farm. You can grow a few vegetables, add some fruit trees, or create a forest garden with native plants and even raise livestock. And it's all organic with natural pest control and compost fertilizer. I'm really fascinated that you turned to permaculture as a way of organizing the agrarian part of your project. So I'm just curious how that came about and what that brought to the project. I initially was looking at homesteading since I was thinking of integrating that kind of agricultural aspect with the housing. So it's like each house or everybody has their own kind of access to homesteading or like growing their own food essentially. Mm -hmm. So it then led into permaculture, which is really interesting because it's different zones of vegetative interventions. So like, I think the furthest zone is like timber and like you can forage for like lumber. And as you get closer to the house or whatever, the kind of main building where it supplies like uh, like water and all the needs for like plants irrigation, um, you get your kind of like food crops. So like your lower shrubs and like fruit trees. And I thought that was really interesting how it's like, you have all these different types of ways to feed. So whether it be like crops or like roots or herbs like it kind of all works in a sustainable kind of not necessarily radial depending on how you like laid out in my intervention it was kind of laid out very strategically but um how all these different kind of interventions can work together so like closer to the building is you know like your kitchen garden and the thing that you probably are going to go out there every day yeah and then each of the next layers is a little it's less intervention, a little less maintenance, a little less work until you get to the forest, which is yeah. kind of doing its own thing. Exactly. So I use that as kind of like a buffer towards like the highway and then mm -hmm. kind of everything, again, that you would need more intervention or interaction with is like closer to the community. Mm -hmm. It's funny, the student I'm working with this semester is doing that. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It's a... Um, He's looking at different kinds of green infrastructure in actually West Baltimore, not mm -hmm. far from where, where your sites were. That's awesome. Um, everything from like a balcony planter for herbs yeah. mm -hmm. to 
a, a terrace part of a building to a set a mid-block garden to yeah. a farmer's market you know so at all the different scales yeah which i think is really exciting it's really nice you can yeah. have like a planter bed grow some tomatoes oregano yeah like in your backyard i think that's like a nice way to kind of also get a whole community into like getting into more like natural food especially since it's kind of a known thing that Anacostia in general has a lot of food deserts. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another kind of empowering element for the community. Mm-hmm. And Leia, your project had um, small garden plots in each yeah. of the areas too, for that, probably for that same reason. Yeah, like it's crazy because West Baltimore, like the neighborhood I was focusing on, didn't have any grocery stores at all. So, like, these people are essentially relying on convenience stores or liquor stores to get food, and you can't get much healthy food from there. So that's another aspect of the community. You know, let's provide for ourselves the things that you need, Mm -hmm. you know, to sustain. And given the name of this podcast, I think we should take a minute to talk about how Leia and Jasmine are building hope. Right. Um, Leia is building hope by bringing much-needed awareness to the issues of lot vacancy and homelessness. She's challenging the bottom-line mentality of status quo development by insisting that everyone, everyone is worthy and deserving of a beautiful, safe home. And Jasmine is building hope by resurfacing lost history and imagining a rich social and cultural life for the people of Anacostia. Both projects stem from radical imagination that puts people first. Um, Is your project radical? And if so, in what ways? I don't see too many projects that think about um, housing for people who don't have capital. Like, I think a lot of housing and everything is built for the purpose of return on investment so like Mm -hmm. if you have developers and they want to develop you know housing or some type of area like multifamily housing like they're thinking okay well how can i get you know my return on my investment how can i grow this project to you know grow capital but the way i thought of it is just simply like this is like not for profit this is just simply to help people who need it desperately you know yeah i mean i remember looking at a project in california where they spent like i think it was like 40 million dollars and like maybe only 40 tiny little houses for the homeless were built Wow. So I just, like, with with that being a precedent, like, that's not, that's not good architecture. But if they gave you that money, you could do a lot more. You could do so much. Like, you know. Even even a million of it, let's say. Honestly, like, it doesn't take $40 million to do that. That is a lot. That is just, so I guess it's radical in that sense. And the investment is in people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the return is on 
maybe a little bit of a healthier community. Yeah, I think that's the that should be the goal at this point. I know. Capitalism has done enough. Yeah. <laughs> we, right. We need to help the people who are trapped in this system. Its limitations are all too glaring at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, same question for you, Jasmine. Is your project radical? Well, I don't necessarily think it's... I think it's radical in the sense of like the context. So where I think if you're looking at DC, you're not gonna encounter like agrarian communities often and especially ones that are in such hardscape areas. I think it's a radical idea kind of trying to return to aspects of the past and trying to reinvigorate that as like how to move forward with a community. But I think I've seen definitely more pushes to have more agrarian communities in different kind of areas. Hmm. But I think for sure, given the context of like, you know, DC, I think it it is kind of radical. Mm-hmm. We asked Leia and Jasmine for an example of a cultural artifact that illustrates their thesis idea. Could be a place, or a text, or image, or work of art, music. When I was researching for my thesis, I mean, it's not really a piece of art, but it's like an artist village in Senegal by Toshiko Mori. And... I was really inspired by that place because she really wanted to empower like a lot of the artisans that lived in Senegal to, you know, create works of art, to contribute to the cultural um, landscape there. Mm. And just, and, and the way that she created this artist residence is like, it was like a village, so there were studios and like places for people to live, like all encapsulated into one building. And I, I was really inspired by the way that it fostered community amongst like the artisans that lived there, like from construction to the people that reside there today. The driving feature of the project that makes it so interesting is like this undulating roof. And Um, she utilized artisans that lived in Senegal to kind of guide the construction of it and use their native techniques in Mm. building construction to do so. And I think that's how you really celebrate people and culture. That's really what I strive to do with my project is fostering that community and celebrating the people that live there. I think... Again, like beauty shouldn't be tied to capital. It should just be. It's, it's an expression of the human spirit. Right. <laughs> yeah, and and it's a community, a binder, or, or it's an expression of community too. Mm-hmm. When she presented her thesis, Jasmine opened with a quote from the American architect and educator W. G. Clark. Architecture seeks not only the minimal ruin of landscape, but something more difficult a replacement of what was lost with something that atones for the loss. In the best architecture, the replacement is through an intensification of the place. So I definitely think that encapsulates my 
project pretty well because it's yes. like how are we not only going to rebuild what was taken away from here but like how do you intensify that spirit and the layers of history so i think that was that was a good one that's so that's awesome that's thank you for finding it i was yeah. like <laughs> i am so bad at like reciting lyrics like this is well it's been i mean how it's long it's been almost two years <laughs> yeah, yeah literally i have not opened my computer since graduating so like <laughs> oh my I, goodness <laughs> to find that nothing of my thesis was on my computer was very devastating So we, we came up with a title for this season of the podcast. It's called Patience in an Emergency. And it's from, um, do you guys know who Wendell Berry is? He's an old guy. He, um, <laughs> I love him. I use him in my class sometimes. He's a, he's a farmer uh, in Kentucky, but he's also, uh, I mean, he studied with Wallace Stegner. He's, uh, he, he said, I tell people to be patient, but to be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. Um, you know, it's like, there's a sense of urgency. And I was thinking about when I got out of grad school, I had a lot of big ideas about how I wanted to work and everything. And then I get in a firm and I find out I really don't know anything. So Mm -hmm. I have to spend all this time learning and it's, it's really sometimes frustrating. And it's like, I have these big ideas, but I, I have very low level of skill. And so I don't know if that's at all ringing a bell. Absolutely. yeah. Uh, even at that time, I was um, impatient, right? But now, everything's, the climate is burning, and people are marching the streets, and there are people who have nowhere to live, and, uh, you know, history's being erased, and, like, I was not aware of any of that when I was your age, so I feel like I don't want to over-dramatize, but there is that permanent sort of baseline feeling of it being an emergency. Mm-hmm. So my question to each of you is, what comes to mind when you hear that phrase, that to be patient in an emergency? What comes to mind? You know, I think it's like the idea of like planning, collecting resources, making sure that you're going to effectively address the emergency. Rather than like stumble, there's a lot of planning involved that has mm-hmm. to be done, like groundwork laid, whatever the response is, whatever the situation. Yeah. I think you also have to kind of see how, yeah, instead of being in immediately reactive, like try to gauge how things are playing out and address them as you go. Hmm. I don't know. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. That seems very wise, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's how we kind of got here in the first place. Yeah. People just being reactive and being like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's tough. Like I, I, like hearing that phrase, I just felt like it is really hard to be patient with everything that's happening. I mean, like for me, it kind of just feels like with government initiatives to address the how many issues that there are, you know, war, climate change, you know, access to housing, food, like it's just all getting worse and everything is happening at a snail's pace like <laughs> and i think um there there definitely needs to be more of a sense of urgency because i feel like you know just 
in terms of climate change, just encouraging people to recycle plastic bottles or use an aluminum straw, like that is not enough. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> we need to be holding people accountable at this stage, like real drastic measures mm -hmm. need to be taken. Um, so I think that kind of leads to impatience because there's just not enough being done. But at the same time, like what Jasmine was saying, like good solutions take time. So you have to be patient to like, in terms of really thinking about solutions to these problems. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Building Hope. Our next episode, is building hope by listening, the power of moving away from giving answers and toward asking questions. Building hope is Julie Gabrielli, director. Vincenza Perla, research assistant. Maisha Islam, graphic designer. Rona Cobell, editor. Raymar Toison, music. Hannah Zozobrado, assistant producer and social media head. Gabriella Feinberg technical director and producer. You can find images of these visionary projects on our YouTube channel at Building Hope Pod. Visit our website, buildinghopepodcast.com, for show notes, transcripts, guest bios, and curriculum materials. We're also on Instagram at Building Hope Pod. And on Substack at Building Hope. Please share and rate Building Hope on your favorite podcast app to help others find us too. This project is supported by a Faculty Student Research Award from the Graduate School, University of Maryland, as well as grants from the University's Sustainability Fund and the School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. <laughs>